Thank you so much for joining us online. My name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors at Christ Community's downtown campus. And today's passage comes from Luke chapter 22, and we're going to be reading two sections, verses 31 through 34, and then I'm going to jump down to verses 54 through 65. Hear now God's word to us. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we get this extraordinary episode in your life and the life of your followers, that it might continue to teach us and shape us and form us as your people in the 21st century. And we ask, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would form us right here in this moment by the preaching of your word and the receiving of your word that you would shape us more into the image of Christ. God, may your grace superabound and may we receive and rest in it today. Thank you so much for this time. We love you, God. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Well, in 1994, uh, during the Marathon of the Sands in Morocco, an Italian police officer, Mauro Prosperi, he got lost in the Sahara Desert, one of the most dry and barren environments on the planet. And you have to ask yourself, how on earth did he lose his way in a race? Well, for two reasons. Number one, it was a six-day-long endurance race, and hallucination is the name of the game in those distances with those kinds of conditions. Number two, during the race, a sandstorm barreled through disorienting the runners further. So it was a day later after the sandstorm, Maro, he found himself in a Muslim shine, uh, shrine actually in Algeria. And in an attempt of self-preservation, check this out, he captured, killed, and ate bats he drank, yes, his own urine, and then he licked dew off of rocks. 
And he got so desperate that he thought he wasn't going to make it that he actually tried, and this is gruesome, he tried to slice his own wrists. And it was so dry that his wounds actually clotted. And when he had given up, his body itself began to fight for its own self-preservation. So when he came back to his senses, he went back out into the, des the desert. And then nine days later, nine days after wandering in the desert, he found a village and that village then was able to call a helicopter and he was able to be flown to a hospital. In all, check this, he traveled 180 miles and he lost around 35 pounds. It took months before he could eat solid food again. And after all that, he still loves running. I totally get it. That's an awesome dude right there. Now, it's astounding what we'll do to survive. The lengths we'll go, uh, the relationships we'll abandon, the things we'll do, which leads us to one of the most astounding passages, I think, in Scripture. When I came to the story of Peter, I used to think he was kind of the king of self-preservation. But now, as I've studied the text a little bit more, I'm not so sure. You know, the more I study the Bible, one of the most intriguing questions to ponder when I come to a text is not the what's, the when's, or the how's. Those kinds of questions are important. But the question that really captures me is always why. For example, why does Jesus stop when someone touches the edge of his clothes? Why does Jesus call a woman a daughter? Why do the Pharisees get angry when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath? Why, why, why? Like these are the questions that really spark my imagination. And herein lies one of the most intriguing stories of Jesus' life. In many ways, yes, it focuses on Peter, because Peter, he's Jesus' top apostle, the rock, he stumbles over himself. And when you look across all four, four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are different emphases along the way, different ordering, sometimes even of the events. Um, and at times, it, they each include kind of unique narratives that some of the other gospel accounts won't. But listen, all four gospel accounts have this story of Peter which has had me thinking, why is Peter's story of denial central to the narrative of the cross of Jesus? Why is it across all four Gospels? Why is Luke adamant to include it? And in our journey to rediscover Jesus' kingdom throughout Luke's Gospel, what's unique here? Because by including this narrative in all four Gospel accounts, the Gospel writers are communicating that somehow this is essential, somehow this is central, somehow this is crucial, and they don't want us to miss it. What is it they don't want us to miss? Well, let's take a look to find out. Turn with me in your Bibles or your Bible apps to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Now, before Peter was a follower of Jesus, he was known as Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon the son of John. But when Jesus called out to him to become a fisher of men, he changed his name to Peter, the rock. This is a new name that came with a new identity, a new way of Peter to define himself defined by Jesus. But here, interestingly enough, Jesus addresses Peter with his old name twice over. Right here in verse 31, Simon, Simon. The repetition, it makes it clear, Jesus wants to get Peter's attention. He wants Peter to see his helplessness, his humanity. And with that as the backdrop, he warns him of Satan's impending attack. But Peter, he won't have any of it. You know, you read in the text, he's like, Jesus, I'm with you, bro, right? I'll go to prison even to death. He can't imagine faltering or failing. 
I mean, that's for weak people. He's now the rock, right, of Jesus's people. And so Jesus says again, no, actually, in this instance, Peter, you're not. Not this time. You'll deny me three times before the rooster wakes the day. And, and you have to imagine the weight of that statement as it landed on Peter. Because no doubt, Peter's remembering back to Jesus's earlier teaching, all the way back in Luke chapter 9. After Jesus has chosen his 12 apostles, Peter is clearly the burgeoning leader. And after Peter himself has confessed that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus says to all of them in chapter 9, verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This word deny is the same word we see here. And Peter, he took this to heart. Peter knew that in life, everyone has to deny someone at some point, either themselves or Jesus. And Peter was utterly determined it wouldn't happen to him. He was not going to deny Jesus. And yet, Peter does exactly as Jesus says. If you jump down once again to chapter 22, verse 54, as was the passage that was read for us, Peter, he's inside the high priest's house in the courtyard. And remember, this house isn't just a mere home, it's a complex. And Jesus is being interrogated and abused, actually not far from him. Peter is veiling himself, by, but still trying to watch what's happening to Jesus and as the events unfold. And this is what we see, right? We see first a teenage female servant makes a claim that Peter was with Jesus, and he denies it. Second, someone else makes the claim that Peter was with Jesus, and he denies it. And then about an hour later, a third person makes the claim. With an hour, think about this, to sit on the first two denials and come to his senses. And he still adamantly denies that he knows Jesus. Then the rooster crows. And then Jesus looked at Peter in that courtyard. And Peter remembers what Jesus had foretold and prophesied just a few hours before. Peter was afraid and he was in a panic. And in that moment, he had denied Jesus. I mean, Peter never, he never thought it would come to this. But, but Jesus knew. And listen, the more I've studied Peter's situation, the more I have compassion for him. I mean, earlier in Luke chapter 22, verse 38, there's talk of having swords. And then in all of his bravado, right, Peter tries to defend Jesus just like he said he would. And when the mob comes for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's Peter who cuts off a servant's ear. He's ready to die. He's ready to go to prison. And then Jesus says, stop. Violence is not my way. And frankly, some of Jesus' most stern words of correction are toward his followers when they try to engage in violence. And while Peter's in the courtyard of the high priest, verses 63 through 65, which was at the tail end of the passage that was read for us, where Jesus is being beaten by his captors, this isn't happening just after Peter's denial, but partially even during Peter's denial. And Peter's watching his Lord suffer and yet he's also been told not to intervene, not violently. I mean, that is disorienting, no matter who you are. And it makes you unsure of what to do. And so I can imagine the difficulty of this moment for any human being. And yet Jesus knows what's going on inside of us. When I was a pastor um, in Chicago while in seminary, I had a gentleman who was married to a kind young woman. Um, they'd, they'd both waited a long time before they got married 
And he'd always say, you know, I'd give my life for Jesus. You know, if I was in a foreign country and they said, you, you either have to be quiet about Jesus or we're going to kill you. You know what I would do? I would shout about the good news of Jesus at the top of my lungs. But then the irony is, is that he couldn't even bend in the slightest way to serve his wife. If she wanted to just go on a walk on a nice day, he thought she was being demanding. If she asked him to help carry in the groceries after shopping for a period of time, he chided her as lazy. I mean, you could see in the moment that all of his overconfidence that given the situation that he would give his life for Jesus was ill-founded because he wouldn't even give his life for the person near him, his own wife. You see, Jesus, he understands the frailty of the human heart. Even if we at times grow overconfident in our innate abilities, we're weak creatures left to our own devices. So what does Luke intend for us to see? Is it that in this story we're to, to see how somehow like a showcase of how weak we are? To humble us? To remind us of our need to lean into Christ's strength? To keep us from overconfidence? Now, I think while we resonate with Peter in this moment, that's definitely on display here, but that doesn't appear to be the central thread. Now, it's important to note that there's another character in this narrative. Peter isn't the only one engaging Jesus. Another central character throughout chapter 22 is the Satan or Satan. This is the title, actually rather than a name, that describes an angelic being who is anti-Christ, the adversary of God and his purposes. And no matter how many times I read about Satan, I just personally, I struggle with his existence. Not, and, and to be clear, not on like an existential level, there is evil that has felt otherworldly to me, that's beyond human, that seems to have a life of its own. But rather, I just struggle with it on an epistemic level, to wrap my head around this being who is real as you, as you and me, but he's also very different. And yet, despite my cultural location and how I'm you know, prone to kind of doubt anything beyond the physical world because being a 21st century modern uh, person, we see that Satan shows up front and center right here in the text. And while Satan has come to realize that he can't make Jesus fail, his tactic is actually to pick off the disciples one by one. And so back in chapter 22, verse 3, we see that Satan motivates the betrayal of unbelieving Judas, who although he walked with Jesus for years, years, he'd never truly surrendered to him. And now in our passage, Jesus says, to Peter that Satan has demanded to have Peter too. Satan wants the authority to shake up Peter violently, and the image that's used there is like sifting wheat. Sifting wheat was one of the final processes in producing usable wheat. After a series of other steps, the final step was to take the wheat, put it into a sieve, which is like a round wooden frame with wo wo woven fabric of sorts throughout, and then they would shake the sieve violently and what would remain is the good part of the wheat. Satan, he wants to shake up Peter. And not just Peter. You see, the word you is actually plural there in the text. So Satan actually wants to do this of all of the disciples, but especially Peter. And he doesn't come asking nicely. Do you see that? He comes demanding. Now, of course, Satan can't do anything without God's permission. And yet, Satan is indeed a powerful adversary. And he's engaged in sifting humanity. He's watching. He's waiting. He's attentive to us, even if we aren't attentive to him. And he'll leverage our weaknesses against us. Peter, 
He's learned this lesson, and, and he, later on in one of his letters, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. He'd experienced that personally. Satan's real. He's powerful. He's attentive to your vulnerabilities, your proclivities, and your desires. And he has a plan for your life. It's just not a wonderful plan. And to live without an awareness of this adversary and his power is to miss a crucial aspect of the battle in which we find ourselves. I mean, even here at the moment when Jesus is heading to the cross, we find the Satan at work toward destruction. And so then you may ask if you're like me, you know, is this why the story of Peter is included in each gospel account? To reveal how powerful Satan is? You see, this evil one who is lurking about to destroy humanity and God's good purposes with a level of effectiveness in the present, is this our focus to see this being? I think that's important. And we should live with our eyes wide open, especially in light of this text. But I still don't think it's the central idea. Okay, so on display in Peter, we see the utter frailty of humanity in our own strength, and we see how powerful the Satan is to leverage that frailty toward our demise. But really, what's central is what's happening at the end and the beginning of this narrative. So first, the end. <laughs> Look at Luke chapter 22, verses 62, 61 and 62. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. I honestly never knew how to explain Peter's weeping here. You know, there was a part of me that thought, oh, is this like some pathetic response? I mean, he should have known at this point. And it's such a sad moment. And it is, but Luke is actually communicating something else. We should begin asking if we've been walking through the text, okay, what happens when people weep in the presence of Jesus? Is there a pattern here in the biblical text as we meditate on this passage? And maybe to give us two examples of where this takes place in Jesus' response, you could jump back to Luke chapter 7, verse 13. When Jesus comes to the town of Nain, and there's a widow who loses her only son, and Jesus, he sees her weeping, and he has compassion on her, and he gives the boy life again. Because of weeping in front of Jesus, there's restoration and new life. If you go a little bit further in Luke chapter 7, verse 38, you see Jesus eating at a prominent Pharisee's house. And a woman who has a reputation in the city for being kind of the worst, she starts washing Jesus' feet with an ointment that's simultaneously mixed with her own tears. And then she wipes it off using her own hair. What's Jesus' response? It's to stand up for her, to advocate for her, to be her intercessor, and then to forgive her sins. Once again, weeping before Jesus that leads to restoration and new life. Again and again, we find Jesus' teaching rings true in Luke chapter 6, verse 21. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. And here, it's, it's no different. When Peter is weeping, Luke is signaling towards Peter's reconciliation with Jesus that the gospel writer John makes more explicit in his gospel account. But how is that even possible, right? I mean, here's what we cannot miss in this narrative. 
Why it's anchored, I think, in every one of the crucifixion stories in all four gospel accounts. Even in our weakness, when the evil one seeks to take advantage of our frailty in order to destroy us, when we fail and we deny him, here's what we can't miss, Jesus won't deny our tears. Jesus won't deny our tears. If we come broken, confessing, repentant, he sees our tears. And there's nothing we've done there's nowhere we've been that Jesus will turn us away if we come with tears of genuine repentance. And this is what we're meant to see of Jesus. He is, among other things, an astounding prophet who already knows what's coming, our worst failures, our denials, our disappointments. And he's ready for us to return. Why? Well, because not only is Jesus a different kind of king with a different kind of kingdom, if we are to rediscover anything of Jesus's kingdom. It's that Jesus's kingdom is furthered by forgiven failures. Forgiven failures like you and me. You see, Jesus knows failures will come. But you know what gives me so much comfort when I think and meditate on this text? It's exactly because of our weakness and the power of the evil one that Jesus meets Satan's attacks with his own intercession on our behalf. Look again at verse 32 of chapter 22 in Luke. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Peter will fall, but he will not remain disabled, partly, partly because Jesus intercedes for him in prayer, which is just astounding. I mean, do you imagine Jesus praying for you when you're in the midst of temptation, when you're in the midst of trial and test? Because he is. He's interceding for us and our faith and our endurance. And failure, it doesn't preclude you from God's kingdom work we see here with Peter. It may limit certain kinds of work for certain seasons, but we won't be held back from the family. Jesus won't deny our tears. And so wherever you're following Jesus or wherever you are in your journey of following Jesus, turn and strengthen each other. Turn and strengthen each other. Here Jesus is charged to Peter as a charge to you. Look with me at verse 32. And when you have turned again, what a word of confidence. When you have, not if you will, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know, a lot of disheartening things have happened this last year. Everyone's kind of been in a state of neurosis, I heard one counselor say. We're weak and everyone has been a bit disoriented, maybe a lot like Peter in this passage. All of us have made crazy decisions we have no business making. We've said things we shouldn't have said. We've kept quiet when we should have spoke up. We've ghosted loved ones. We've embraced conspiracy theories. We may have seasons of complete inattentiveness to our neighbors or to God himself. I mean, the evil one, he's just pounced on so many of us throughout this season. Well, I want you to hear, no matter what it's been like, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, now's the time to turn to repent and to weep because Jesus won't deny our tears. We need personal repentance and communal support. We need the Spirit of God alive in each of us personally. We need to leverage our newfound grace to care for those around us and prop others up around us. We need to lean into each other for support. Now's the time. I don't know where you are in your life right now when you're watching this, but you need to hear Jesus won't deny your tears. So come crying to him. Come weeping. 
Come begging, come pleading, come down on your knees and ask for repentance because listen, he's listening. He's been praying and when you've turned, love your church because she needs you. Your brothers and sisters need you to be about their strength, not to abandon them, not to walk away, not to ghost them, but to be there for each other. That's what Jesus is calling us to. That's what he's inviting us to, if we'll but turn. You know, in 2016, Martin Scorsese came out with the film Silence. And honestly, at first, I watched it and I hated it. Um, the premise is basically there were a group of missionaries who were sent to Japan and they experienced untold persecution and suffering. And all they had to do to get out of the suffering was to deny Jesus by stepping on, the, on an icon of his image. Rodriguez, one of the missionaries, he hears the cries of fellow Christians who are being tortured and he finds out that they aren't being tortured for their lack of denial of Jesus. But one of his torturers says they're being tortured because of your lack of denial, Rodriguez. He wrestles with whether or not Jesus wants him to deny him for the sake of others. And it ends with Rodriguez denying Jesus outwardly and blatantly. But at the end of the movie, you find that he's been living a private life of commitment to Jesus, which only becomes explicit at his burial and known to very few. Listen, at first I watched this movie and I hated it. It made no sense to me. But the more I think upon it, the more I wonder if I have something to learn from Martin Scorsese. Even amidst radical denial, if we come confessing, if we come weeping, Jesus will never deny our tears. And when I think about who I am, what I'm capable of, the power of the evil one, knowing that Jesus will never deny my tears, it shakes me to my core and it makes me so grateful for the gospel. You see, we can't miss this. Every one of the apostles wanted us to know this because they knew it deeply in their own lives. So come weeping. Jesus is ready and he won't deny your tears. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for this example of failure in, in the text, of how Peter, I mean, the rock, the key follower of Jesus, I mean, the leader amongst Jesus's followers, failed miserably. And what a good reminder that no matter how far we've fallen, you're always ready to receive us if we but turn and then simultaneously strengthen one another in our walk with Jesus. God, help us in our humility to come to you with the most deep and broken parts of our souls and to surrender them over to you and then to receive your gra grace and to rest in it. We know we can't even do that on our own. So Holy Spirit, go about your work in the deepest recesses of our hearts. Bring us back to you, fully to you, wholly to you, that we might know joy more deeply. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us first and loving us always. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen, amen, and amen. And now we turn to a meal where all of our failures receive grace and we remember his abounding love for us. It's here in the Lord's Supper where we remember what Jesus did 
to earn that grace for us, that forgiveness, and so justify us before the Lord as right, even though we are completely wrong. Here at the Lord's Supper, we remember Jesus' body broken through common broken bread, and through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you have those elements available to you and you've got some friends or family around you, I encourage you to pause this right here and to engage in the Lord's Supper and to do so in remembrance of him in community or in individual capacity. But before you do that, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, eat and drink grace afresh.